Good evening, everyone. <clears throat> it's good to see you all tonight, and we are in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, and we'll pick up in verse 17 this evening. And then we'll read through verse 35. Matthew chapter 26, verse 17. <clears throat> says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. And he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. The Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, He broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when He had taken a cup and given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight, Lord, asking for uh, you to give, Lord, to us the strength and the grace and mercy that we so desperately need, Lord, that we might uh, live faithful lives before you. Lord, seeing that even your disciples, Lord, even when you removed your hand of protection from them, Lord, they all uh, quickly scattered and, Lord, they fell away because of you. Lord, even though they so boldly and uh, brashly asserted their loyalty, Lord, their devotion and faithfulness to You, yet, Lord, we see that they could not stand even for a moment, Lord, apart from Your grace and Your mercy. And so, Father, we know that we are uh, men with a nature like theirs, Lord, that we are no better than them, but in many ways they are far superior to us, Lord, both in terms of their faith and godliness and in the way that you use them, Lord, in the building up of your church. And so, Father, we know that we desperately need you to sustain us. Lord, we need you to grant to us endurance and perseverance in our faith, Lord, to keep us from falling away. And so we ask tonight, Lord, that you might use your precious word and that your Holy Spirit would be with us, Lord, building us up in our faith and instilling, Lord, within us, uh, those things that are needful for our salvation and, Lord, for us to live lives that are glorifying to you. So, Father, we pray that you help us tonight and give us, Lord, ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to understand, 
Lord, your word and build us up in our faith. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we are in this passage where it has begun the final account of the life of Christ uh, before his death and resurrection. So beginning there uh, at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, you do have a very brief narrative concerning the birth of Christ, but the majority of the book is taken up with the years of his public ministry, that three-year period of time that began at his baptism and then culminates at his death and resurrection. And now, having gone through this three-year course, it has come to the end, to the final act, uh, as it were, in the life of Christ, uh, this final evening where he is instituting here the Lord's Supper, also pronouncing uh, what is going to happen in terms of his own disciples, and then all this will lead up to his betrayal, to his uh, arrest, his trials, his death, and then ultimately his resurrection and his ascension uh, from, uh, from this earth. We know already from what we read last week that Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, had already agreed to betray him. Uh, and had already struck a deal there with the chief priests and the scribes uh, to hand him over for 30 pieces of silver. He was going to look for an opportune time uh, for them to arrest him in secret because they were afraid of the crowds for the people that there might be a riot. And they had also determined that they would wait until after the feast uh, to do these types of, of things. But in the providence of God, it will come about in a much quicker time. So now in verse 17... We come then to this final evening that Jesus spends with His disciples. This is the Last Supper or the, the final Passover meal that He shares with them. And it is out of this meal that is born or gives rise to the institution of the Lord's Supper. One of the sacraments or ordinances that we as a church today in the New Covenant continue to keep uh, and we participate in every week. And so this is born out of this Passover meal with his disciples there that evening. So let's pick up in verse 17, where you have the preparations for this final Passover. It says there, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Here, this is taking place on the first day of unleavened bread. There is this feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that begins on the 14th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar, the month of Nisan, and then it runs through the 21st day. So it's a week-long festival, and this festival, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, begins also with the Passover. The Passover is performed that night, the first night of this festival, and then the feast runs throughout the course of that time. So this is the first day, and this is the day in which they would keep the Passover. And Jesus, being born under the law, he kept all of those rituals, all of the sacrifices, not that he was needing to offer sacrifices for his sins, because he had no sin, but in order uh, to fulfill all righteousness for us, he maintained and he uh, observed all of those rituals and ordinances that God had put into place under the old covenant. And he always kept the Passover. And now he will keep this final Passover with his disciples, which is also gives rise to his teaching of his coming death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. And certainly, as we read last week, he is our Passover lamb. He is the ultimate, the fulfillment of all of those Passovers are found in him. He is the one who delivers us from our sins. So they know that they are going to observe this 
And so they are asking him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? This would be uh, the disciples asking this. Now in Luke 22, verse 8, we know that the disciples that he sends are Peter and John. So Peter and John are the two that he sends to prepare this meal. And then in verse 18 here, he says that they're to go into the city, this city being the city of Jerusalem, because the Passover could not be kept in other towns, but it had to be kept in Jerusalem. If we go to Deuteronomy 16, Deuteronomy 16, there we see that the Lord regulated that the Passover meal was to be observed in a place where God showed them. And ultimately that came to be in Jerusalem where it was established there and the temple was built during the time of Solomon. But the worship was moved there during the time of David. Deuteronomy 16 verse 1 says, Observe the month of Abib and celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. You shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and the herd in the place where the Lord chooses to establish His name. You shall, not eat you shall not eat leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, so that you may remember all the days of your life in the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. For seven days no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory, and none of the flesh with uh, which you sacrifice on the evening of the first day shall remain overnight until morning. You are not allowed to sacrifice the Passover in any of your towns which the Lord your God is giving you. But at the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish His name, you shall sacrifice the Passover in the evening at sunset at the time that you came out of Egypt." Uh, then it says, You shall cook it and eat it in the place which the Lord your God chooses. In the morning you are to return to your tents. Six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God, and you shall do no work on it. So there, they're not allowed to eat it in any of the towns that they choose, but in a place where God chooses to establish His name. And this would be wherever the tabernacle was erected and the worship of God was established around the tabernacle and then later at the temple that was built in Jerusalem. So the tabernacle did have a few other resting locations before it came to rest or be founded in Jerusalem. But during the time of Christ, Jerusalem, that, that city, this is where the temple was. This is where the worship of God, where His name was established in this way. And that was the city in which the people were to observe the Passovers. And there were various parts of this ritual that had to be performed at the temple, such as the slaying of the Passover lamb, right? It had to be done there at the temple by the priests. And then the people would take the uh, meat and then they would go and roast it and they would do that there in their home. So it necessitated the involvement of the priest and the temple and the altar and the sprinkling of the blood, all those things. Therefore, it was necessary for it to be done in a place established by God where his name was known. And so this is why they go into the city and this city would be into the city of Jerusalem, though in the evenings they are going back to Bethany, which is about two miles distance from Jerusalem. So Bethany is where they're staying in the evenings and then they'll travel to Jerusalem during the days. But because it's Passover, they're going to go to Jerusalem. He sends Peter and John ahead 
to prepare it so that when he and the other disciples arrive, everything is ready and in order. And this is necessary as well. These things don't happen miraculously. They don't happen uh, accidentally. It's not just going to be there. Someone has to do it, right? Someone has to go and prepare these things so that everything is ready for the people to come in this way. And this is what he sends Peter and John to do. Now, he tells them that they'll go into the city and there'll be a certain man. And say to this man, the teacher says, my time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. If we go to Mark chapter 14, Mark 14, 13, tells, he tells them that when they come into Jerusalem, there'll be a man carrying a pitcher of water and that they're to follow him and he'll lead them to the house. And then when they come to the master of the house, then they're to ask him for its use. Mark 14, 13 says, And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. So here they come into the city. There's a man carrying the pitcher of water. They follow the man to the house, they ask the owner of the house that where is the room because the teacher is in need of it and then he will give them access to this large upper room and that is where they are to prepare this last Passover meal. And this certain man is likely a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ who is there, uh, not likely some just random stranger that they come to, but someone who is acquainted with Christ because they tell him the teacher is in need of this. And it's likely then that this man understands and knows that the teacher is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so he is happy and willing for his house to be used for this purpose. And then there they are to make ready the Passover meal for them, which would entail purchasing a lamb taking that lamb to the temple. The lamb would be slaughtered there at the temple and flayed. The blood would be sprinkled on the altar. The fat would be burned on the altar. And then they would take the meat with them. The meat would have to be roasted. They would have to prepare the unleavened bread. They would have to have wine for the meal and then bitter herbs as well. These were the elements of the components that went into the Passover meal. So the lamb, the wine, the bitter herbs, and then the unleavened bread. And this is what they would eat during the Passover meal. So all that would have to be gathered, would be purchased, and would be brought there to the place so that they can have this meal together. Then verse 20, Now when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. And as they were eating, He said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray Me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to Him, Surely not I, Lord. Here they come to the evening and he's there with the 12 of his disciples. So all 12 of them are there. They're all present. Judas, though he has already gone secretly and met with the, the chief priest and agreed to betray Christ, he is pretending now to still be one of his followers, to be one of his disciples, to be a part of this inner group. And here he is with them partaking of this Passover meal and even partaking of the institution of the Lord's Supper, which is why uh, we always say that, again, none of us can have perfect uh, uh, application of these rites and rituals. 
it is up to each person, right? It's up to the church and to the one administering these things as best as he can to discern, to examine the, those who are partaking of these things. But even here, Jesus did not forbid Judas from participating in the Passover or from participating in the first establishment of the Lord's Supper, even though he knew that he was a devil. And that's on Judas's own head. Right, So no one is able to perfectly discern the heart of each man. All we can do is do the best that we can. Jesus knew who Judas was and still permitted him to do so. We don't know what's in the heart of people, so we can only do the best that we can. And if someone comes and they're professing to be a Christian and they want to participate in the Lord's Supper and there's nothing that we know of that would prohibit them from doing so, then we admit them to the table. And if they're doing it in an unworthy manner, then the guilt is on their own head. We simply lay out the rules and regulations, and then if they participate in it in an unworthy way, then they themselves are bringing guilt and condemnation on themselves. And the same would be true with baptism. If someone is professing faith in Christ and is showing evidence of those things, are we to wait 20 or 30 years in order for them to be tested and proven before they can be baptized? No. We, we can't do that. We just have to do the best that we can. Is it possible that we might baptize someone who is a false professor? Well, sure, it's possible. But as long as we're explaining it rightly and laying those warnings out before them, then that guilt is on themselves if they participate of it in a way that is unworthy. And here, even Judas participates in the first Lord's Supper, right? The very first one was tainted, sullied by this false brother who was there among them. And if that was the case at the first Lord's Supper, instituted by Christ and overseen by Christ, then how are we going to excel Christ? It's not going to happen, right? It's not going to happen, and it's an unrealistic expectation that some churches place there on themselves and on the leadership of the church to make sure that no one who is unworthy is permitted to the table, but there's no way to discern that perfectly in this life because of our own weaknesses and limitations, nor is there, I think, a biblical basis for that practice, right, or for that type of scrutiny over these rituals and rites. So here they are with the twelve, and Judas is already there with them, ready to betray Christ, right? This is what he has come to do. But it is unknown to the others, right? Jesus announces to them that truly one of you will betray me. And they don't immediately all look at Judas and say, we all know who it's going to be, right? This is what you would think, right? If he is a devil as he truly is, you would expect that when Jesus says this, everyone would just say, well, we know it's going to be Judas, right? This guy's been a, a real son of the devil since the day that we knew him. But this is not the case. False brothers will come in unaware, and they are very crafty in their hypocrisy, and they are able to deceive. And the response of the disciples is that they, they want to know who it is. And each of them thinks that it's potentially, possibly, going to be them, right? And so they're saying, Lord, is, it's not I, is it? Right? They're all concerned that perhaps he's speaking about them. And we might wonder, how could they have such doubts, right, of their own salvation? But isn't it true that many times we are uh, assaulted with these kinds of views as well? When we, many Christians that I've met, when they read about the unpardonable sin, they ask and they wonder, is it possible that I've committed this thing? Right, that their doubts begin to creep into their mind. And so it is here even with the very disciples of Christ. Even the leaven who are good and true and sincere, faithful followers of Christ, they're questioning their own loyalty and whether or not it could be them. And they don't immediately suspect that it is Judas. This is how 
adept he is at deception. So it is unknown to the others, and they are deeply grieved when he says this. Deeply grieved that somebody's going to betray Christ. Deeply grieved that it's one of their number who are there, and they've been together for three years now. So they're all very intimate, close friends, having spent three years together with Christ. And then also deeply grieved because they're all questioning in their own, in their own selves, their own hearts and mind, whether or not they are the one who will betray Christ. So it's very troubling to them when Jesus announces this to them. A couple of passages, 1 Timothy 5, 1 Timothy 5, 24 and 25. First Timothy 5, 24 to 25. This would be an example of this. Judas would be. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Up to this point, the sins of Judas were not quite evident to the other eleven. Right, They're unaware of who he truly is. Maybe they have some suspicions or doubts, but what he truly is is ultimately going to be revealed, and it is going to become very evident to all of them what kind of a man he is. And this is the way it is with many people in this life. Some people's sins are quite evident going before them to judgment. Others' sins will follow after them. But we can be sure that all hypocrisy, all liars will be exposed on the day of judgment. And God will reveal what is in the hearts of men, whether for good or for evil. All of it will be revealed. And then also Jude chapter 1. Jude chapter 1 verse 4. Jude 1 verse 4 says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this con condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Here, this is a good description of Judas. And again, now he did not creep in unnoticed to Christ. We know that Christ knew from the beginning those who belonged to him and those, the one who would betray him. But to the others, he crept in unnoticed. They were unaware of these things. He's an ungodly man, right? He denies our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Didn't Judas do all of those things? This is an apt description of him. Yet to the eleven, he crept in unnoticed. He was among them for three years, and they were unaware of what he truly was. Then also, uh, Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, verse 4 says, but it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. False brethren secretly brought in, right? They're false, but they're brought in secretly. And who secretly brings them in? 
The devil does, right? The devil does in his malice and evil. Now, none of this escapes the notice of God and none of it is contrary or outside of God's will. God uses these false brethren to test the true brethren to see whether or not they will maintain their faith. This is one of the afflictions that God afflicts us with. But in terms of their responsibility and in terms of our responsibility, when these false brethren are exposed, or rather when they expose themselves, then we have to handle it accordingly. But here, they're false, but they're brought in secretly, in a secret, sly way, in order to spy out our freedom in Christ. Then one other one, Titus 1. Titus chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Titus 1, 15 says, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Here, the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure to them. Their mind and their conscience are defiled. And they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. This is Judas Iscariot. He professes to know God, but by his deeds he will ultimately deny Him. And he will become the betrayer of Christ. So here, they are deeply grieved whenever Jesus announces to them uh, this, what is going to happen. Then verse 23, and he answered, He who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. Here Jesus, to calm the other eleven, gives them a sign or a signal by which they themselves can come to know who is the betrayer. And it's the one who is dipping the bread in the bowl, likely at that very moment. When Jesus is sopping his bread in the bowl, the one who is at the same time dipping his bread in the bowl with him, this is the one who will betray him. And likely in a setting this large, there would have been several bowls and Judas would be positioned closely to Christ because they're reclining at the table. He would be positioned closely to him so that he had the ability to dip his bread in the bowl with Christ. And this was the sign of who it was that was the betrayer, the one dipping his bread in the bowl with Christ. If we go over to John 13, John 13, we have a little more information on this incident. John 13, 21 to 30. John 13, 21 says, When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was one reclining on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, This is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now none, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things that we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. So here, when he says this, 
Peter gestures to John, who is the one Jesus loved, who is leaning there against the bosom of Christ, and tells him, hey, ask him who's he talking about, right? Who is the one? And then he tells John, the one that I give the bread to, this is the one who's going to betray me. And then John, at least John and Peter, are aware of what's going on and what is taking place. So it seems like some of the others don't really know what's happening. Because when Jesus tells Judas, what you do, do it quickly, they think he's instructing him to go out and either buy more supplies or to go and give some offering to the poor uh, as a way of showing charity during the Passover, right? Of doing good works there uh, in order to be pleasing in the sight of God. So here then, there's this sign given of who it was that would betray him. And this sign of him eating bread with him goes back to Psalm 41. Psalm 41, this was prophesied um, in the Psalms that his betrayer would be one of his intimate friends. Right, because when we eat bread together, when we break bread together, it's a sign of fellowship and of friendship. And here, Jesus, as the chief prophet of Israel and this great teacher and being with them as their father for so many years and being their master and Lord, yet for one of his close friends who he had been with for so many years and who had done so much good to him for him to betray him in this way. Psalm 41.9 says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. So here, this is Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot is the one who lifted up his heel against Christ. Then verse 24. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Here, Jesus, in order to calm their fears again, says, the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of Him. Right? He wants them to understand and know that none of these events that are transpiring, that are going to transpire this evening, beginning with the betrayal of Judas, his arrest, his trial, his uh, scourging and flogging, then his crucifixion, his burial, all of these things are not happening by chance. But all of this is happening according to the will of God. It's all been written, right? The Son of Man goes, and where is the Son of Man going to? He's going to the cross, right? He's going to go and die on the cross for our sins. And all of this and all of the events that bring it about, such as the betrayer, such as one of his own disciples lifting up his heel against him, all of this has been purposed and planned by God from before the foundation of the world. And all of it has been recorded in the prophets hundreds of years before that this is the way all of this would come about. So all of these things are according to the purpose of God. The Son of Man used by God to bring it about, right? God is the one who brought this about in the life of Christ. And yet those men by whom these evil deeds are committed are still responsible for what they have done. So though God uses their sin, and though God is the one who has ordained it for His greater good, for His glory, and for uh, the bringing about of the salvation of His people, yet those people, insofar as what they're doing is evil, contrary to the law of God, they are responsible for their own sins. So did Judas's deeds, right, were these unaware to God? 
Did this happen outside of the will of God? Of course not. All of this was foreordained by God according to His purpose and plan, but that does not negate or alleviate the culpability and the responsibility of Judas Iscariot. He is responsible for his own wicked deeds, and he will pay for what it is that he has done. God meant it for good, but he meant it for evil. This is the way it is in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. So in Jesus, this is why he says it would be better for him had he never been born. All right, it would be better to never exist than to be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. And this is not merely true of Judas Iscariot. This is true of all unbelievers. Right. All unbelievers. It would be better had they never been born. This is the way we need to look at it when we're thinking about our lost loved ones, our lost friends, even our lost neighbors or acquaintances. It would be better for this person to have never existed than for them to experience the eternal torments of the lake of fire. Right? This is what he is saying in re reference to Judas. Now, certainly with Judas, there is going to be great judgment and condemnation upon him, right? greater than what most men will experience because his sin was so severe and so great. And this is the way Jesus is using to describe the judgment and condemnation that will come upon him. Then verse 25, And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely it is not I, Rabbi. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. So this shows you just how hard-hearted, how calloused, how much of a hypocrite Judas Iscariot was. He knows full well what he's done. He's already received the money. He's got the silver in his pocket or wherever it is. He has the silver. He knows what he has done. And yet he's still protesting. He's still giving this impression, just like the rest, that surely it's not I, Lord. I wouldn't do this to you, knowing full well that he's already done it. Right? He's already committed it in his heart and mind. And in terms of putting the, uh, the evil deed into action, th that's already, the ball is already rolling there as well. He just hasn't found the opportune time in order to betray him, which is why he's even with them in the first place. Right? He's there now to spy out their freedom in Christ, to find an opportune time when Jesus will be alone in the dark, away from the crowds, and they can come and apprehend him in secret. And Judas knowing and being intimately familiar with the movements of Christ and where he's going to be and when he's going to be there is the insider, the spy among them who can give them the goods so that they can come and take Christ away and do this without uh, causing a riot or a ruckus there among the crowds. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 2, it talks about men who have their conscience seared. And this is truly what happened to Judas. 1 Timothy 4 verse 1, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. There in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. This is what happened to Judas. Not that he was ever truly in the faith, but by falling away, he proves that he never really was of them. And he is a hypocrite, a liar, whose conscience is seared as with a branding iron. Because even when Jesus announces this betrayal, Judas, and he sees the trouble and grief of his friends, 
right? He knows all the other 11. He sees how troubled they are. He sees how concerned they are about what is taking place. He's unmoved or unaffected by it. It doesn't lead him to confess it. It doesn't lead him to come to Christ and, and come clean. He doesn't do any of those things because his conscience is so seared, it's immovable, right? There's no feeling in it. It's just burnt over and he presses on with his evil deeds. Verse 26, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Here we have the institution of the Lord's Supper and the institution of a new ordinance or a new sacrament that is appropriate for the new covenant, for the new covenant, for the time after the death and resurrection of Christ, right? We can look at the old and new covenant as divided by the person and work of Jesus Christ. The old covenant takes place before the coming of Christ into the world. And there it was accompanied with various rituals, various ordinances that were given to the people to prepare them for the coming of Christ. And then after he comes, there is a new set of rituals or ordinances instituted by Christ that are appropriate for the people living during that time after the coming of Christ. So one set for those believers before the coming of Christ, and then another set appropriate for those believers after the coming of Christ. Okay, so there is a distinction between the Passover and the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not the Passover in the same way. We're not doing the same things. We don't bring a lamb to the church. We don't slaughter it. We don't burn the fat. We don't sprinkle blood on an altar. We don't roast it and eat it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread and have wine and do the whole meal like they're doing. And then whatever's left over, we take out and burn it. Right? We're not doing any of those things on Sundays. However, what we are doing is born out of the Passover. Right? When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he did it in this Passover meal with his disciples. So he's showing the continuity between the two covenants, right? Between them, because what they were doing was foreshadowing what Christ would come and do. So there is a unity, a continuity between the old and the new, but there is also a difference, right? It's, there is a distinction. It's not the same ordinance, right? And it has to be defined according to the parameters given in the New Testament by the apostles and by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ himself. So this is what is happening here. And Jesus is the only one who has the authority to do this. He is the only one who can institute new ordinances or new rituals into the church that are binding or obligatory on the people of God as a ritual or a rite that we are to follow or to practice uh, throughout the history or throughout uh, our, in our worship of God. So he has that authority uniquely because he is the Lord of the church. Right. He is the head of the body and only he can do that. So I cannot create some ritual and say, this is what we need to do as a church and then say, we're all going to do this. And if you don't, you're committing a sin. I don't have that authority. And if I did that, it would be idolatry for me to do so. I don't have the authority to abolish something that is established in the Bible. But Jesus does. He has the authority to abolish whatever was in the old covenant that he does not see as necessary for the new. And he has the authority to establish new rituals in accordance with 
the new covenant. And this is what he does during his time on earth. And he alone possesses this authority. The Pope doesn't. No pastor has it. No man has it. Only our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because he and he alone is Lord of his church. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, says, He is also head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. There, He is the head of the body, the church. And as the head on our body is the leader, right? It is the, the top. There's nothing above it, and it is the most important part of the body because it controls everything. So Christ is the head of his body that is the church. He is the ruler, the king over the church who rules it as he sees fit. Also chapter 2, 16 to 17. Chapter 2, 16 to 17. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Right? The shadows belong to the Old Covenant. The festivals, the new moons, the Sabbath days, the various rituals or the various laws concerning food and drink, these were shadows that belonged to the Old, but the substance of those things belong to Christ. And as Lord of the Church, Jesus has the authority to say that these things are no longer binding upon the people of God. They were there momentarily for a season in order to keep the people in suspense until the substance should come. But when the substance arrives, those things are no longer necessary. This is why in Mark chapter 7, it says, Thus he declared all foods clean. He declared all foods clean and said that these things are no longer necessary to to keep. Also in Acts chapter 11 and 12, this happens there with Cornelius or, and with Peter when he goes to him and Jesus tells him to eat all of these various animals. And Peter says, I've never eaten anything unclean. And he tells him, don't call unclean what I call clean. Christ has the authority to make that distinction for a period of time. And he has the authority to abolish that distinction at a later period of time. And only he possesses this authority. Also, Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, a passage that we are familiar with. Hebrews 3, verses 1 to 6. It says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all of his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. Whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. There, Jesus is the apostle of our confession. Faithful just as Moses was faithful. Faithful, Moses was faithful to establish the worship of God under the Old Covenant. But Moses' authority was only by way of a mediation, right? He was receiving his directions from Christ, who is the ultimate apostle over the church. But as he received it from Christ, he established those things. So Moses 
though he was the one who gave them the rules and directions for the tabernacle and later for the temple, for the high priestly garb, for the high priestly family, for the various festivals and rituals that they were to keep, all of that came through Moses. But Moses was merely a servant in the house of God. But who is the son over that house? Jesus Christ. And who has more authority, Jesus or Moses? Jesus Christ. So if Moses put something in place, then Jesus has the authority to abolish it and to say that it's no longer binding. And that's part of his authority. He's the one that gave Moses the authority initially to institute those things. And then Jesus has the authority to abolish those things whenever the fullness of time has come, right? Whenever it is fitting according to him. And that would bring us to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13. Hebrews 8, 13 says, And when he had said a new covenant, he made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Right? A new, an old covenant and a new covenant. And obviously, if there is a new one, then whatever is in the old one is becoming obsolete, growing old, and it's ready to disappear. Meaning these various rituals, shadows that were associated with the old covenant. Those things are passing away. They're growing obsolete because of the establishment of the new. And what is the event that ushers in the new covenant? It is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Meaning those aspects, those rituals of the old are becoming obsolete. And now new ones are being re uh, uh, constructed in their place or brought up to replace those things. And this is why we observe the Lord's Supper and we don't observe the Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread or uh, the Day of Atonement or any of those things. And we don't go to a, a high priest and we don't go to a tabernacle temple on the earth. We don't take animal sacrifices and sprinkle blood on an altar on the earth. We're not doing any of those things here on the earth, though all of those things are still being done for us. But they're, they're being done spiritually and invisibly. They're being done in heaven by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ with better elements. And this is why uh, he does these things. So there is then this distinction and continuity, right? The continuity in that the Lord's Supper is born out of the Passover, yet a distinction in that it is new, right? It is a new ritual for the people of God in the new covenant, right? The time after the coming of Christ. Okay, now the elements. The first is he says, take, eat, this is my body. This is my body. Here, the bread symbolizing the body of Christ. Now, we know he means this not literally, but symbolically, right? Symbolically, the bread is to be to us a picture, a visible picture of a spiritual reality. The spiritual reality is the very body of Christ. The visible physical element is just bread, right? It's just bread. There's nothing sacred about it uh, in that it has a magical purpose to it, that if you eat it, it's going to uh, make uh, leprechauns grow in your belly or anything like that. None of that's going to happen, okay? It's simply, it's simply bread that a person ingests. And if a person is not doing it with faith, is it beneficial at all? It has no benefit. If we're not apprehending what the bread represents by faith in the Word of God. We have to understand 
why the body of Christ is important, why it is necessary, and why it is needed to bring about our redemption and our salvation. And that is from Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, the body of Christ is his offering, the sacrifice, the gift that he offers to God for our salvation, right? Because every priest, he comes and he offers sacrifices and gifts on behalf of the people. So when Jesus arose as high priest, he also, it was necessary for him to have something to offer to God. And he offered his body, his human nature to God as a sacrifice for our sins. Hebrews 10 verse 1. For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of the things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had any consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you have, not taken, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure of them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. And by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So it is the body of Jesus Christ offered for our sins once for all. Because He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Our sins were placed in His body on the tree, and then His body was put to death. It received the punishments that we were owed because of our sins. And the punishment of sin is death. And this is why He had to be put to death in His body. So the human nature of Christ is essential for our salvation. If Jesus doesn't have a human body, then we cannot be saved from our sins. And this is why His humanity is being represented to us in the bread, right? In the bread, because it was His body that was put to death on the cross for our sins. And we have life through His death. We have substance for our souls through His bread, which is His body that gives life to the whole world. So the bread then represents the body, then the blood. The blood in verses 27 to 28. When he had given a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Again, here, the blood is not literal blood, it's wine, but it is representing the blood of the covenant. And the blood of the covenant being the very blood of Jesus Christ. Now, the reason why blood is necessary would be Leviticus 17, verse 11. Leviticus 17, verse 11, blood is where the life is found. So if the blood is spilt, if the blood comes out of the body, then what happens to the life of the person? The life is forfeited, right? The man dies. Or the animal. This is why the animal 
was slain and its blood was spilled because when the blood flows out of the body and the life is in the blood, then there ceases to be life in the man, right? It brings about death. Leviticus 17.11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So the reason it was necessary for blood to be sprinkled on the altar was because the life is in the blood. And this shows that the life has been forfeited. The life has been taken and the sacrifice has been made. The life of the sacrifice is taking the life of the sinner who deserved to die because of their sins. And in the Old Covenant, that was symbolized with the animals. The animals were dying instead of the people. As it, remember, it says in uh, Genesis chapter 22, I believe it's chapter 22, when Isaac was to be offered on the altar and God provided a realm, it says that he sacrificed the realm instead of his son Isaac. Instead of Isaac dying, the ram died in its place. And the evidence that the ram died was its blood was poured out. And its blood is poured out there on the altar to make atonement for sins. Well, this is how our atonement takes place as well. But not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. His life was in His blood, and therefore His life was forfeited. His blood was spilt and poured out for our sins. He took our place on the cross and he died for us. The life, our life, which should have been forfeited because of our sin, instead his life was forfeited in our place. He was sacrificed for us. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9, 11 to 14. says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. There it is the blood of Christ. He offers his own blood. So he is both the high priest who is offering the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. It is his blood and he is the altar as well. All of it is culminated and fulfilled in the one person who is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Also while we're there, Hebrews 10, 22 Hebrews 10, 22 says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There are hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, right? We have an evil conscience, a guilty conscience because of the knowledge of our sins. But now our hearts are sprinkled clean and we know that our conscience is clear that there's no longer any guilt of sin because the blood of Christ is sufficient to take away all of our sins. And so we have confidence before God. And we know from 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 that we were ransomed from the feudal ways we inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. The precious blood of 
Christ is the one who takes away all of our sins. So the blood of the covenant is the blood of Christ, and this blood is symbolized there in the cup. So both the body and the cup are representing to us the death of Christ. The death of Christ because his death is necessary for the forgiveness of our sins. Then verse 29, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it with you anew in my Father's kingdom. Here, Jesus is simply saying to them that his time of departure has come. He's not going to eat with them and drink with them anymore in his incarnational state. He's going to die uh, this very, the next morning, he's going to be put to death. So this is his last meal, his last supper with his disciples, and he will not eat with them again in this way, right, until he eats with them anew in the kingdom of his father. That while they are going to be sad, because he's not going to be with them any longer, he is reminding them that there is a life to come, and in that life to come, they will eat and drink with Christ for all eternity. So they shouldn't be troubled that he's leaving them and that he's going to be separated from them in this way because there is a greater existence coming in the life to come and there is a feast that our Lord Jesus Christ has prepared, right, on his mountain, a feast of well-aged wine, right, and of choice meats and we will eat with him for all eternity. This is the way it will be. So we should not be disheartened but we will soon be with him in a heavenly life. And then verse 30, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, which is a fitting response to the worship of God, right? When we worship God, that we would lift our voices and make melody in our heart to him, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. It says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. And here they have partaken of the Passover. He has instituted the Lord's Supper. They have worshiped God together. So when they conclude, they sing a hymn together, and then they go out from there and go to the Mount of Olives. Okay, then verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Now Jesus is announcing to them what's going to happen in the uh, very, in just a, a matter of a, a few short uh, hours or a very short amount of time. They've had this great time of fellowship, this last meal together, this institution of the Lord's Supper. This is also when Jesus washed their feet. All these things have happened. And now the things are drawing near that are going to lead to his betrayal right, to his arrest. And when this happens, all of them are going to fall away because of him. And he's telling them beforehand in order to prepare them for it. And so that when it happens and after it happens, they're not overwhelmed with discouragement and with sorrow in these things. So he's announcing, you're going to fall away because of me this very night. And this is according to what is written in Zechariah chapter 13. Zechariah 13 verses 7 to 9 there the prophet predicted that when the shepherd was struck the sheep would be scattered 13 verse 7 awake O sword against my shepherd and against the man my associate declares the Lord of hosts 
Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, They are my people, and they will say, The Lord is my God. There, God is the one who calls the sword to awake, to rise up against his shepherd. Right? The sword being the sword of judgment that will come against the shepherd who is our Lord Jesus Christ, against his associate, right? Against his anointed one, the one who stands there for God. God will be the one who strikes him down. It was the Lord's pleasure to put him to death, as it says in Isaiah chapter 53, and that when God strikes him, the sheep will be scattered. His followers will be scattered whenever Jesus is struck. Whenever he is being put to death, they're going to be nowhere to be found. His disciples are all going to run away and they will be scattered. And we know that this is exactly what happened. When they came to arrest him, they were filled with such fear and trepidation that they all ran for their lives and left him there by himself and then none of them were to be found. However, he also gives them encouragement. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Right? I am going to be struck down, meaning I'm going to be put to death, but I'm also going to be raised. So he's announcing to them his resurrection and also announcing to them their restoration. I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So though they are going to be unfaithful to Christ and they're going to deny him, is Christ going to forsake his sheep? They are going to be scattered, but he, being the good shepherd, will go out and find his sheep, his lost sheep, and he will bring them back into the fold. He will continue to care for them and to continue ministering to them. And this is as it says in 2 Timothy 2.13, right? That when we are unfaithful, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. We are unfaithful to him. And many times, isn't this true of us as well? we are scattered. We wander off like lost sheep. And though we are unfaithful to Christ, Christ always remains faithful to his people. And he gathers them back. He brings them back. He cares for them. He tends to them so that not one of them will be lost. In his most difficult moment, in his most severe affliction and trial, all of his friends abandoned him. Though they did that to him, he does not reciprocate it to them. Instead, after his resurrection, he goes ahead of them to Galilee. He will restore them. He will build them up and use this as a time to teach them, to test them, to refine them, and to prepare them for the future. And this is why he is the good shepherd. He remembers that we are dust. He knows what we are. He knows how feeble and frail we are. He knows that we are dust, and he cares for us, and he does not forsake his own. So this should be a great encouragement to us because we are often like these disciples, right? We fail in many ways, but Christ never fails us. Then verse 33, but Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Here, Peter, uh, who has proven himself to be very faithful, to be a man of great faith, Right? He is the chief among the disciples. He is the one who made the good confession of faith in Christ, 
who do you say that the Son of Man is? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's the one who was at least willing to walk on the water, right? At least for a, a moment of time. The others didn't do that, but Peter was willing to do so. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration and saw those things there. So Peter has proven himself to be very zealous, to be very bold, to have great love for the Lord. And here, when Jesus announces to them all that they are going to deny him, Peter says, even though everyone else falls away, I will never fall away. I would never forsake you. And certainly we would say that he means this, right? That in the moment, in his own mind at least, he is genuine in what he says. That, no. that he really believes that he would never forsake and that he would never abandon Christ. But what is he not factoring into the equation? The weakness of man. Our own inability to stand on our own. If anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. When Jesus announces this to them, they should be on their knees begging him for strength, begging him for grace. Lord, do not let this be so. Do not permit this to happen. Please give me strength and grace and help so that I will not deny you. I don't want to deny you. Instead of protesting and announcing their faithfulness and loyalty in opposition to the very word that Christ has announced to them. Right? This is what they were doing, and they're doing this in their own pride and in their own self-sufficiency. This is how Peter is doing this. And so because he is the one who speaks up and announces his loyalty to Christ, then his fall will be more severe, more pronounced, more egregious than the fall of the others. This is then verse 34. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. His offense would be greater than the rest. They would be scattered, right? They're all going to run when the soldiers come and they arrest Christ. They're all going to scatter and flee. But the rest of them aren't going to publicly deny Christ, you know, verbally deny him three times. But who will deny him three times? Peter. And when will he do it by? Before the rooster crows in the morning. Here it's already in the night. And before the morning comes, before the rooster crows, here in a few Hours after you are making such loud, bold assumptions concerning your own faithfulness, you're going to deny me not one time, not two times, but three times you're going to do it this very night. And this is what the brash protest of men, this is where it gets us. Our own abilities, our own self-sufficiencies, all the things that we think that we can do. The boast of men are... Worthless, completely worthless. Then verse 35, he digs his heels in. Peter said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. In Mark 14, 31, it says that he kept saying insistently. He's insisting that no, I will never do this. I will never do these things. He is insisting that Christ, what you're saying is not true and I will never deny you. He has more confidence in himself than he does the word of Christ. Right. And that's the problem. That's the problem. And it's his own pride and his own self-sufficiency that is causing him to do this. He's not rightly humbled. And these are the disciples of Christ. And they're still squabbling and doing these types of things. And in many ways, they are our superiors. In every way, they are our superiors. And yet this is what was true of them. And yet Christ did not forsake them. 
He continued to use them, and then he did accomplish great, mighty things through such men as this. And then as a result of Peter making these protests, all the rest join in as well. And they're all saying the same thing too. So not only is he doing it, but leading them to do so as well, all in self-confidence instead of in humility crying out to God for help in their time of need. So it should be a warning to us that we everything... It all has to come from God, right? We have no strength in ourselves. We have no ability in ourselves. And anything that someone else does that you are aghast at and think, I could never do that, you better take heed lest you fall. Because Peter is aghast when Jesus announces to him that he would deny him three times and that he would fall away. And yet what does he do? He does the very thing that very night. So there is no sin out there that we are not capable of committing. All of us are capable of committing the most gross sins against God. And the only thing that keeps us from doing so is the grace of God. Only His grace and His strength working within us. And if someone else does and we don't, well, we should thank God that He's given us the grace to stand firm, to stand firm and to not deny the faith. And we all could be like Judas Iscariot if God withheld His grace and favor from us. So everything we have comes from the Lord, and we have to depend completely, solely upon Him for our faith, for the Christian life, for everything that we need to do. Though we are responsible ourselves, it all must come from the Lord. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing apart from Christ. So, and this is exemplified here in his own disciples.